If I recall, I, I started that book with the fact that the Bible can be either boring or intimidating uh, because there's just a lot in it. I mean, it's an ancient book, uh, you know, arising from an ancient culture written originally, you know, in uh, Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. There, there, there's a lot of um, uh, work that is required in order to kind of climb into the world of the Bible, just as would be required in an English class if, if you're trying to climb into one of the, the great classics. And so um, I, I can understand the trepidation. Uh, I can understand, uh, you know, even sometimes feeling a little bored, but I would just, I would just encourage you again that no matter, it's been said, no matter how many steps you take away from God, it only takes one to get back. And Satan will do everything he can to make Jesus seem boring to you. My dad used to say that when we wake up in the morning, it's almost like Satan just has a little finger on the top of the, our Bibles, you know, just, just not wanting us to open it because when we engage with his enemy, when we engage with the, with the Lord of love, then um, we are on the path uh, to, to meaningful uh, life and joy. And so to the person who says, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to read it, but I struggle for time. Like life's busy. It just, it's that thing that keeps getting squeezed out. Any practical suggestions, word for folks like that who wrestle with that? You're not alone. Uh, I do. I, I struggle as well. You, you, but I think we all know that, that we do things. We, we prioritize things. We make time for things that matter to us. So to go back to the illustration about eating meals, you don't forget to eat meals. Uh, you're a busy person, but you're not too busy to eat. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to go through a drive through right? Sometimes you're not going to have the, the most epic quiet time, but that, that's okay. The point is regular communion with God over the pages of his word. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a discipline, but... If you put it, if you just, if you just prior, and I would say, find someone else. I mean, you're, if you're struggling, there's likely someone not just in this room, but maybe in your pew who is also struggling. So find someone else and make it a communal effort. One of the chapters in the book is approach your Bible communally, um, which I mean, like, don't, don't, don't try to do this alone. We need, we need one another. And, uh, and especially, I think, coming on the heels of this pandemic, a lot of us are tired, we are beleaguered, we are, we are discouraged, uh, maybe we're anxious. We've never needed scripture more. And so lastly, to the person who's saying, oh, you know, my heart is cold. Like, is this really going to do any good? It almost feels hypocritical to like open this thing up because I feel far from God. Any words to them? If it's just, well, that's a normal experience for every Christian. I want to say that. There, there is a chance, you know, the reason I paused there is uh, I, I don't want to uh, sound this note or strike this chord too loudly, but I think it's worth registering. If you have zero interest in Jesus Christ and no desire to read his word, you may need, I, I'm especially speaking maybe to those of you who are college students and grew up going to church and um, perhaps were involved in youth group, if you have no interest to read 
God's word, it might be worth reflecting on, uh, do you know God personally? Have you put your trust in him? Um, but I don't want that to make it sound like we can't have, I mean, in my, in my life, I have many seasons of, of where I'm battling spiritual dryness, spiritual apathy. And so if, if that's you, more likely than not, given what I know about UBC and how you, uh, you know, uh, do meaningful church membership, I would say you probably are a Christian, but you're struggling. And I would encourage you again, find someone else and say, I am struggling to be interested in, to be thrilled by what used to thrill me. This, this book I know is important, uh, but I, it, is, it is not uh, warming my soul in the way it once did. Can we read through it together? Can you hold me accountable? Can you set an alarm on your phone and text me every day at this time and just simply ask, hey, have you spent time with the Lord today? It's probably worth noting, if I was a really good friend of Matt, I would tell him the questions I was going to ask him in advance. But instead, I just love to throw questions at him so we can have a little fun conversation here. So even when it comes to spiritual disciplines, I once read a very wise person say, spiritual disciplines are not about making you more precious to God. They're about making God more precious to you. Do you recognize that? Yes. Matt wrote that. I think that's just a good word, right? It's just when we come to scripture, when we come to prayer, when we come here, it's not because we're trying to put on a front. It's not because we're trying to dress ourselves up for the Lord. It's not because we're trying to make ourselves precious to him and all these things we do and say, look at the time, look at the commitment, look what we've done. It's actually about making God more precious to us as we encounter him in his word and with his people. All right, so let's think a little bit. Actually, you know what? I've got uh, two copies. Is Terry Irwin here? Terry, I lifted these off the bookstall. I'm very sorry. Uh, permanently borrowing them, okay? Um, so uh, who would be helped by having a copy of this before you open your Bible, Nine Heart Postures for Approaching God's Word? I got two copies here I'd love to give away, and Trey is going to hand them out. So the most recent book you've published is this book here, Deacons, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church. And last night, a number of the deacons here and some of the elders, Matt, we all got together in the fellowship hall. We talked about this book, and we probably spent a good hour, hour plus thinking through it. Um, but I'm curious, just to open as we think about this, why did you write a book on deacon ministry? Like, why is a book like this important? Not just I wrote it because someone commissioned me to write it, but like, why is it important for us to think about a book like this? Well, because the office of deacon is important enough for God to have made it one of only two offices in the, in the local church. Um, and it's an office that is so widely misunderstood. And so uh, I think particularly in, in Baptist life over the last hundred years, the, the, the misconceptions of what a deacon is and is not have uh, just led to all sorts of kind of downstream problems in the life of churches. In some churches, you have deacons where they are just the church's handymen or the savvy business managers or the financial wizards, or they're functioning kind of as... Um, functional elders. They're, they're kind of the leaders of the congregation, or they're the people who view it as their job to keep the pastor humble. So they're going to be a counterweight, um, a check and balance on his every decision, kind of like a house and senate dynamic. 
all of those fall, I think, far short of the Bible's very high and glorious vision for the office. So I was basically trying to cut through some of that static, some of that confusion out there, and, create, and produce a, a short, accessible book that you could hand to a pastor or even to a deacon and just say, hey, here is your biblical job description. And so the average member should especially care about that. Why? Like, they may be thinking, I don't really have any intention of being a deacon. So how would this book impact me? How does it affect me? How does it affect our life here? Well, every maturing Christian should be deaconing. So it's probably important for me to, to make clear that um, the Greek word that gets translated as deacon is, is the word diakonos, but the vast majority of the time in the New Testament that word shows up, it doesn't get translated as deacon. It just gets translated as servant or minister, i.e. you. A, a diakonos most of the time in the Bible is just referring to a generally servant-hearted person who emulates the Lord himself in their service. Um, even a, a verse like Mark 10, 45, rendered literally is, for the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. So one reason you should care about deacons is because your Savior's entire earthly ministry was characterized by a, de uh, was, was shaped diaconally, and your Christian life ought to follow in his footsteps. And that's why when you get to, and we can talk about the qualifications later, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which I think Brad has preached through before, the qualifications for deacons, what's most striking is that they're not qualifications for superstar Christians. They are qualifications that ought to mark every maturing Christian. So a deacon is, is not a superstar servant. A deacon is just someone who's faithfully loving God, serving others, and modeling to a congregation what it looks like to make the, the not only life for you all as a congregation better, but to make the work of the elders and especially the pastors a joy and not a burden. So any encouragements to a congregation like ours, a congregation where we've sought in the last you know, 10 or 15 years to recover the, the biblical model of church elders as shepherds and pastors who minister the word uh, and minister through prayer right to the flock. To, and so we've, we've sort of recovered that. And as we try to work through employing deacons in the service and ministry of the church for the benefit of the church, any sort of ditches that churches like ours can fall into, maybe on one side or the other, that you give some encouragements, maybe some cautions to us? Yeah, I, I can kind of come at this from a couple directions. So in, in, on one level, I think churches can either wrongly elevate the role of deacon to being uh, de facto elder or wrongly reduce the role to being just kind of a, a building and grounds team. But I also think, and actually John Henderson helped me think about this last night in kind of a new way. So one of the big burdens of, of this book is, hey, if you're in a church where your deacons are functioning like elders, something's wrong. Maybe that came about for, for well-intentioned reasons, but that is actually, you know, if your deacons are functioning like elders, not only don't you have biblical elders, but you don't have anyone functioning in your church as biblical deacons, so you're missing out on the blessing of both offices. 
But John also mentioned that, you know, it, he asked if I had ever heard of a church where the elders are kind of functioning as deacons. And, and that, I think, would be another ditch where the elders um, in a church where they used to be viewed as, um, as maybe just the, the finance team or the building and grounds team or the, or the kind of managers of the church, it's important in reclaiming the office of elder that all the elders understand, hey, we are the spiritual shepherds. We're the, we're the lead disciplers and counselors in the life of the church. And then deacons, in light of that, can be, be better understood because they are an office that is subordinate to the office of elder. I'm not talking in terms of like varsity and JV Christians. I'm just saying that the office of deacon reports to the office of elder. Deacons uh, discharge, they execute the oversight and the vision of elders, not the other way around. And it's a really beautiful dance, frankly, when that, when that occurs because, you know, elders lead or equip ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, but the congregation does ministry. So the job of a deacon at UBC is not to take service away from you. It's to actually uh, help you rise to the occasion and mobilize you to serve all the more, to create pathways for you to do what every Christian ought to be doing. So you use the illustration of, of deacons almost functioning like an, an O-line. And this is a, we get football here. So I mean, I would try to use a water polo analogy, but it would largely be lost. Though many of you watch the Olympics, and I heard about that. That was awesome. But an O-line. Yeah, deacons, in one sense, deacons are like a congregation's offensive lineman whose job it is to protect the quarterback, lest he or the elders be sacked by an onrush of practical demands. And, and that's, that's an image that, you know, of course, is unique to American football. But, but the idea arises right out of the pages of Scripture, out of, out of Acts chapter 6. And that division we see very early on in the life of the church between the apostles and the seven, which I think are kind of forerunners, respectively, to elders and deacons. Somewhere else in the book, I, I say deacons are like a congregation's special ops force who carry out un, often unseen tasks with fortitude and joy. And so never underestimate the value of deacons. What, I mean, deacons are difference makers for better or worse. They will either double the elders' ministry and the church's ministry, or they will have it, half it. It's a hard, hard word to say, H-A-L-V-E. They will either double it or half it, but the one thing you can be sure of is that deacons aren't just going to leave your church intact. They will be difference makers for better or worse. And that's why it's so important to get them right. So uh, going back to notes here, thinking about, um, thinking about deacons. Well, maybe actually I'll stop right here. On this topic of deacons, or even on the topic of what Matt just spoke about it a minute ago, thinking about being in the word, reading the word, heart postures for the word. Just to open up for a minute, any questions from you that you'd like to ask Matt about any of these two ideas? We're going to stay here for another minute or two, and then I want to turn to some, some conversation on evangelism. But yeah, just any questions from you all? Yeah, Jennifer.
Yeah, so Jennifer's asking a very practical question. Hey, if I've got two or three minutes, do I just open up my Bible and do I give what I can? Or is it best to sort of set aside two or three or four times a week larger chunks? Any thoughts for her? I think in different seasons, either could be appropriate. What you don't want to do is get into a habit where all you're doing is just, you know, a, a two-minute bite-sized snack and you're never kind of diving into the word more deeply. But there are going to be seasons where maybe that's, that's all you can do. You can only give sustained attention to a, one verse or one brief passage. And still, you can, you can go deep. Uh, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been said that when we rake, we find leaves. But when we dig, that's when you find diamonds. And so be careful of, of only raking across the pages of the Bible. Um, you know, we, it's, it's, it's important to, to find time to dig, but it's not going to be uh, possible to do that. Especially, I think a lot of us who maybe started walking with the Lord in college, you know, we, or, or shortly thereafter, we, we just look back with longing and nostalgia on those days. And we, we can think so easily, man, I loved God so much then because I spent three hours a day in his word. And uh, I, I think there is a sense in which, hey, life has Life has changed. Uh, we, we have responsibilities now uh, that we didn't in college, and so we have to adjust accordingly. And there's no need to live with this low-level guilt because you're not having three-hour epic quiet times every day. And I mean, one thing that can be, a, I think, helpful for you all is we print those sermon cards out. And so we're going to be going through Isaiah here. I'll be in chapters 1 through 5, Lord willing, next Sunday. And, you know, as if you are in that season where you're like, oh, I'm not sure what to read. I'm tired of sort of flipping the Bible open to whatever passage the Lord puts. And then you're trying to pretend like you know the context and you're not misreading it. Well, just turn to Isaiah this week and just read Isaiah 1 to 5. Whether or not you read a chapter a day, whether or not you read all five chapters five days a week. And then when you come on Sunday, you'll have prepared your heart to hear from God's word. And that's where you can sort of do some raking. And hopefully, if I've done my job at all, there's a little digging and some diamonds in there as well. Yeah, and that, like Brad said, that helps you come to church and you're, you're already going to be, your, your, soul, your, your soul and your mind are going to be activated and kind of warmed and you're going to be ready to hear and to, and to dive in rather than being like a car that's been sitting, you know, in your driveway for, well, maybe it doesn't get super cold here, but, you know, a car that's been in cold weather for several months, it takes a while to start up again because the, the engine is cold, maybe, maybe almost dead. And so um, one of the things I, I, I'll tell people is, hey, resolve to come to church hungry and resolve to come hungry and to leave full. I really think that we often think that it's the preacher's job to ensure that we have this life-altering experience sitting under uh, his sermons. And we can just sort of, you know, stumble into church all groggy and that, you know, actually it is your job. So, yes, Brad is responsible to work hard and, and, and be in the kitchen, as it were, during the week and prepare a meal from God's word. But you can resolve to come hungry and you can resolve to leave full. It's been said that a mature Christian is easily edified. And so even if it's a passage that you know well, there's a different, there are two kinds of Christians that can be sitting in a pew. One says, I've heard this already. The other says, I need this again. And so resolve to be a Christian who comes here 
hungry and leaves full. And by reading the, the passage of scripture in the days leading up, that's honestly the best way I know of to get, um, you know, to get your, uh, your hunger up for the word of God. Yeah, it's been said, you know, Judas listened to every one of Christ's sermons and yet was unaffected and unchanged. And so, you know, if you come and you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to really give any attention to my heart and I'm going to run after the things of the world and somehow miraculously expect I'm going to send her the word and boom. Well, the Lord is kind and he does that where he'll, through the spoken word, even when our hearts are cold, he will warm them and transform them. And yet, as we prepare ourselves, we come ready, you know, ready to leave full. Another hand, yeah. Yeah, so Chandler's asking if you've, what if you're at a church where the understanding of the biblical offices is off some, you know, but it's what you have available to you? How, how do you think through that? Well, I think you initiate a, co- a conversation with your, with the pastor or one of the elders or, uh, but you do so in an extremely humble way. So this should not be an issue on about which you become uh, divisive and an annoyance because frankly that will be counterproductive and it'll turn them off to any conversations about deacons and you'll make it harder for the next person who wants to raise the conversation. And so, um, deacon, you know, the theologians and church history have talked about using two, I guess, Latin words, the essay and the bene essay of the church. The essay is the, the essence of the church, things you have to have in order to have a true church. So the right preaching of, of the word of God, the right administration of the ordinances, um, you know, basically being a gospel preaching uh, church. But then the Bene essay is the well-being of the church. There, that's a different bucket. That's things that tend toward the health of a local congregation. And deacons, I think, very much are in this bucket. So you can be in a church that doesn't have deacons, and it can still be a true gospel preaching church. And you should approach that, approach the problem accordingly. Yeah. It's always wise to spend a lot of time in prayer, you know, as you, as you think through, okay, hey, I'm at a church and it's not as healthy as I might like. Okay. Am I praying for the church? Am I praying for the leaders? Am I looking to encourage those leaders before I'm looking to sort of point out all the particular faults I think that leadership has and recognizing there is no perfect church. And so as much as you might want to see the church you're a part of grow more and more into these biblical offices, which is a good thing, you'll never come to the point where you'll come to church and like, oh, they nailed it. Like in every respect, the best people, the best pastor, the best music, like that just doesn't exist. Um, and uh, I know when we were building our house, Clay Morton's like, Brad, I'm going to tell you right now, this is not your dream house. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we're building it. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. It is not your dream house and it never will be. And uh, it's like that with churches, right? I think that's part of the way the Lord intends to sanctify us and also just to remind us this isn't our home. So, And, and on that, two, two other things which I think are important to observe. One, the Bible doesn't say much about deacons. Therefore, we should be humble and charitable 
when we're interacting with churches who might do deacons a little differently than we do. Now, I do think there are ways to get deacons badly wrong, but we have to approach the topic with the understanding that none of us is able to draw from a very deep well of biblical material. The second thing um, I would say is I I think that uh, deacons often in churches where they're misunderstood and misdeployed, where, for example, deacons are functioning in kind of that executive leadership capacity, that's not because, you know, a bunch of deacons one morning, you know, in the mid-80s woke up and just said, hey, want to do a spiritual power grab? No. Often, oftentimes, deacons have become elders or functioning like elders in churches because they're, they've stepped up and stepped into a leadership vacuum. So imagine you're a church and a new pastor comes and he's got fresh vision and fresh initiatives and fresh energy. And two years later, he's left for greener pastures. Who's still there? Who's always still there? Well, it's the deacons. It's the furniture of the church. And uh, therefore, I, to a deacon that has sort of backed into more of a leadership responsibility, I would just say, if you have risen up to take charge in, in an unstable leadership environment, God bless you. You know, I hope, I hope you would read the book and think about maybe there are some, some uh, course corrections, but it doesn't mean you necessarily had nefarious, um, power-hungry motives. So I'm going to keep the conversation moving, but I've got two, is it three? Is this one my copy? I don't think so. I've got three copies of this book uh, that Matt has written on deacons, and it is excellent, uh, and I'd love to give it away. Trey would love to give them away. There you go, Trey. To hands that would raise high, you can grab one. Hey, I want to turn now to an upcoming book, someone that's not published, but it will be published soon, so you all can be looking for it, namely, Before You Share Your Faith, Nine Ways to Be Evangelism Ready. Is that what it's titled? It might end up being just seven. Okay. Might just be seven. I have nine, but, you know, it's one thing to have a list, and it's another thing to figure out. Is there a whole chapter there? (laughs) Well, so you had had nine ways, nine heart postures. Yeah. Okay. It's a nine marks church. No, I'm I'm compromising. Okay, okay. That's all right. That's all right. This is where the drift begins. The drift begins right here. Yeah. Oh, uh, so much I... But seven is a biblical number of completion. It is a biblical number of completion, yeah. That is very true, yeah. Um, So, hey, I want to, as we think about evangelism, I think the first question I just want to ask is, should we share our faith? Even as we come to the topic, because, you know, there's that famous Barna study, and I'm always a little susceptible of studies, but they make for good illustrations. And to the extent that they're actually accurate, it can be pretty frightening. But there was the study back in 2018 that noted that half of millennials who identify as Christians feel it inappropriate to share their faith with the goal of seeing someone of another faith converted. So should we share our faith? Absolutely, we we have to share our faith. But what those millennial, you know, poll respondents are are getting at in part is that they've probably seen or heard of a lot of Christians doing it very poorly. So we need to make sure that we accompany our countercultural message with a countercultural tone. And, and that's not to say that in every gospel conversation with someone, the person's going to end up liking you more than when the conversation began. 
Uh, sharing your faith requires courage. It requires the willingness to be rejected. Um, but one of the chapters in the book will, will be about essentially mind, minding our manners in our um, in the way that we approach these conversations. Every now and then. Just dying on me? No, you're doing fine. Okay. You're doing fine. I think that was the Lord's way of saying that was a good thought. Okay. Um, what? Does not love of the lost also compel us? So I think one of, the, and I think you talk about this in the book. Is that right? So, I mean, sometimes we're tempted to think, okay, I most like honor this individual and I respect them by not pressing into them on these things. And I'm sure you can do it like in a mean spirited way. You know, I'm the truth teller. I'm going to tell you what it is and you're going to listen and let me enlighten you and all the things you don't know, you idiot. Like we can do that. And sadly, there's a lot of that. Um, there may not be as much of that as people sometimes say there is, but that's a caricature certainly that exists. But I think, you know, love should compel us to share with those how they can be reconciled to God. I mean, if what the Bible says is true and we're all made in his image and we are all fallen and we're all actually at enmity with him, like he's not just a neutral party in our lives, like we're actually at war with him in our sin and we are running from him. And yet in his grace, he has provided Christ as the sacrifice for our sin. And in the gospel, he holds Christ out to us and he calls us to him such that we don't have to be at war with him, but we can know him as our father. We can know him as our friend. We can know him from eternity. Like that's the kind of message that we want to share because if we don't, there's no guarantee, you know, so that, that one will hear. So I'll, I'll often ask, you know, Brad, you share the gospel in every sermon. Um, and, you know, I'll say, yeah, that's, that's our altar call. Now, they don't literally walk forward, but in every message, Lord willing, you hear from this church, you will hear the gospel preached because I want anyone who doesn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, I never wanted to walk out of this service and not know how to be reconciled to God. I don't want that on my conscience. I don't want to presume the Lord's going to bring someone who's never stepped foot in a church and gone through a good bit of work and maybe some intimidation to, to walk through these doors and to come here and to sit down with a bunch of people who may look like they've got their life and act together, but we all know we don't. But they get through this point and they sit and they hear strange songs and the lights are always on and then they hear people pray long prayers and then someone stands up for 15 minutes and talks about an old book, right? If they're going to go through all that, they better hear the gospel. They better hear how they can have God as their father and friend. Yeah. Anyone want to add and, that? Uh, well, yeah, I'll just I'll add to it by saying that, it, you know, the verbs that show up in the New Testament related to evangelism are strong verbs. So it's not merely, you know, I'm going to, you know, share the gospel, but it is I'm going to implore. I'm going to persuade. So that's not inappropriate is, is to is to implore someone entreat them to be reconciled to God through putting their faith in Christ. And as Martin Luther famously said, which I think can be applied to evangelism, it's, it's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You know, there, there, there's no superiority complex in, in, in the beggar who said, hey, I've, I found this life-giving sustenance, here you go. And that's what evangelism is. If you truly love someone, and there's even, maybe you guys could look it up on, on YouTube this afternoon, there's an atheist named Penn Gillette. He's a magician and author. He, if you just, if you just on YouTube, right, Penn Gillette uh, evangelism, he has this very striking 40-second video where he basically says that he does not respect people who don't proselytize. 
he thinks that actually that's the most downright hateful thing you could possibly do if you truly believe. He says, if, if I knew that a truck was bearing, if I thought a truck was bearing down on you and I didn't you know, tell you about it, if I didn't dive in the way, you know, like that would be the epitome of hatred. And he said, that's what it's like for people like us. If we really believe what we say, what we believe, to not share the gospel with people like him. So there can be talk, considerable talk around the, the question of contextualization. So some will say you can't faithfully share the gospel without deeply contextualizing the gospel. And others will say, oh man, all this talk of contextualization, that's just sort of code word for basically how can I apologize for my message and water it down. So any thoughts for us on how to think well about contextualization, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing? The uh, contextualization, which is just a fancy 50-cent word, you know, for, for, yeah, making the gospel understandable in your context. The litmus test for whether it's good or bad contextualization is whether the gospel is more clear as a result of it. So bad contextualization tries to make Christianity cool. Good contextualization tries to make Christianity clear. And if the offense of the cross has become um, more evident because you've cut through that cultural static, then you have engaged, I think, in the kind of contextualization that we see in the pages of, of Acts, for instance. So if I were to open up and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, is there anything about that expression, if I were to lead with it and largely leave it at that, that contextualization might help me reframe? Well, yeah, we're living in a uh, post-Christian secular age in which we cannot assume on the part of our hearers any kind of basic knowledge of the, the you know, God, man, Christ, afterlife. In other words, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, you could have pretty much assumed that someone on the streets of Fayetteville um, was coming into the gospel conversation at least furnished, right? They had the furniture in their mind. Even if they rejected God, they, they had a category for a creator, for sin as rebellion against him, for morality in general, for absolute truth, for, for, for heaven, for hell. Whereas today, we can't assume that people are coming furnished. And so we have to do the hard work of um, creating mental categories where they don't exist and subverting people's categories where they do exist, but they misunderstand things. What do I mean by subverting? Well, I mean that in that statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You can basically go through each of those major words and there's a chance that if you talk about that word with someone on the street, you'll be using the same term but different dictionaries. So what you mean by God is not what they're hearing when they hear God. What you mean by love is not what they are thinking. For them, love is affirmation. Love is acceptance. For you, God is love. For them, love is God. So you have to first take your time and make sure that they're understanding what you're saying before you can call them to respond. And I think you know uh, that for so many today, you know, it's no longer a question of is something true? It's more a question of do I like it? Is it fulfilling? 
And so if many of us, I think you know, like something along the lines of, it used to be we're about quest for truth. Now life is just about a quest for happiness. And so if, if what they hear is, okay, God is for me and wants to make me happy, if that's how many would read that statement, we've actually not helped them in understanding the gospel. And so we maybe need to back up and we need to think about, okay, what language do we need to start using and how do we clarify our language such that we're actually not, we may think we're sharing the gospel, but they're not hearing the gospel. They're actually hearing something opposed to the gospel. Yeah, I would even go so far as to say that the vast majority of, of, of non-Christians in Fayetteville have never rejected the gospel. The vast majority of non-Christians have never rejected the gospel, and that's because they've never heard it. They have rejected what they think is the gospel. But I guarantee you, if you go out and ask the average person on the street, what's the gospel? You likely, and this is even more the case probably in other places in the country, but you are likely going to get an answer that has some kind of moralism in it, right? But that's not the gospel. And therefore, one of the things we are doing when we're sharing our faith is that we are helping to combat ignorance so people at least know what they're what they have the 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 ability to to embrace or reject so as we as we want to share hopefully we're praying we're praying for opportunities are there just good and bad ways to share the gospel things we ought to be doing we touched on this a little bit and things we certainly ought not to be doing yeah well we touched on things some of the things not to be doing, you know, don't rush, uh, don't, don't treat people just like, just like projects that, so two, two twin ditches, you can opposite ditches, you can fall into one. You just treat people like projects because you just want to sort of drop a gospel bomb on them and move on. The other is friendship evangelism or relational evangelism that never becomes actual evangelism. Uh, so what I think, I think in scripture, we see all types of evangelism. We see family evangelism. You can, you can look at, um, Timothy for, for example, he, he was raised by a godly mom and a godly grandma. We see so-called relational or friendship evangelism where, uh, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know, we loved you so much that we were willing to share with you, not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. By the way, I would just make one observation about that verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. That's proof that your life is not the gospel. Your, your life is not the same thing as the gospel. Social justice or anything we do is not the good news. Notice Paul distinguishes them. We loved you so much we were happy to share with you the gospel and our lives as well. And if they wanted a good book study in 1 Thessalonians? <laughs> uh, there, yeah, I wrote a Bible study on there it. There it is. All right. Um, and then there's con, you know, so-called contact evangelism. I w when I was in college, there was one campus ministry that was all about contact evangelism and, you know, striking up gospel conversations with strangers. There was another campus ministry that thought that that was cold and impersonal and were very against it. Well, you see all of it in acts. There is a refrain that the apostles went from house to house. You even see it saying that they went to the marketplace and talked with whoever quote happened to be there. So all, there are different kinds of evangelism that, based on the context, can be appropriate. Um, that's why I think when you, I think you note sort of the, the manner we want to have, particularly in our culture, I think you call it what, an age of outrage. Like we live in that age of outrage. And so what we want to make sure we don't do is we don't want to be parties to that. 
Um, and so in our manner of our sharing, you know, we don't want to play, uh, play, play the same part. And you talk about that counter, countercultural tone that needs to come with our countercultural message, which means, right, we, we need to recognize if we get pushed hard against, oh, someone raises their voice, right? They get really angry and upset. Right? It does not behoove us. It is not Christ-like. It is not in any way a winsome uh, reflection of the gospel to ramp back up and to say, okay, I'm going to see your anger and I'm going to add one to it, right? Which is what happens all the time on social media, in the news outlets. That's not how Christians are. Well, it's not how basic citizens should behave in a society. It's certainly not how Christians should behave. Yeah, and a couple quick observations from Scripture. Ephesians 4.15 does not say speaking the truth is love. Some people just think, okay, if I just tell, tell someone the truth, then I've loved them. Well, no, it doesn't say speaking the truth is love. It says speaking, speak the truth in love. So again, that gets to the, the, the fact that our manner, our posture, our demeanor can either beautify and adorn the message or it can undermine it and obscure it. The other scripture I'll, I'll, I'll point out is Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me. There's a promise. All men will hate you because of me. What he didn't say was, all men will hate you because of you. <laughs> Make sure that if people are going to stumble, they're stumbling over Jesus. His message to come and die, to follow him, is offensive enough. We don't need to add to the offense by being jerks. Yeah. And that's part of the goal of contextualization. Right, so part of contextualization is removing all those obstacles to understanding so that the only offense of our evangel like is the offense of the cross. Uh, you know, for many, I think sharing the gospel, it's a scary thing, right? So you recognize you're stepping out of your normal comfort zone of we're going to talk about football or we're going to talk about hobbies and activities. We're going to talk about our family and we're going to talk about like our faith. And that, that's pushing into, into an area that some are going to be reluctant to step into. It's like, oh, that's a personal, it's a private matter. Like, that's not something we discuss. Um, and they're fearful that they say the wrong thing. Or even if they say the right thing, the conversation might get awkward. They're going to be cost maybe relationally. So any words of encouragement you'd have to those who are just literally like, I'd love to share this. I'd love to have that courage. I just struggle a little bit because I get scared. It's terrifying. I, I personally think it's especially terrifying with people you know and love. I, I know some people might think talking to a stranger is, is the most terrifying thing, but for me, it's the person I'm going to have to see again, you know, at Thanksgiving every year. It, it's, it's, um, it can be really hard with the people we care most about to not just kick the can down the road and delay, delay, delay. But as, as Brad said earlier, this is about what it means to love the lost. I used to think that the biggest thing that kept me from sharing my faith was fear. But then I realized, no, Matt, you're giving yourself too much credit. That's a cop-out. The reason you don't open your mouth and take risks to talk about Christ isn't because of the presence of fear so much as it's the absence of love. Because if we really love someone enough, we will overcome our fear to talk to them. And I would even go a step further. The highest motivation, if I asked you, what, should, what is the highest motivation for evangelism? Obedience to Jesus, 
uh, uh, joy for the evangelist? You know, what is the highest motivation? There was a time in my Christian life I would have said, oh, easy, love for the lost. That's wrong. The highest motivation is not even love for the lost, but it's the glory of God. It is love for God, even more than love for man, that propels us to open our mouths when we would prefer to stay silent. And of course, those things can't ultimately be disentangled. As we love God, we will love others. And as we love others by sharing with them what he's done, we glorify him. And it's probably fair to say we're, we're all like PhDs in excuses. So, you know, if you're thinking, I just need to overcome my fear to the point where it's not fearful, well, it's probably always going to be a little fearful. I'm not going to share until I really feel confident that I can answer every question. Well, you're never going to be answered with every question. You're not going to share. Or, you know, you just sort of, until I, yeah, whatever that thing might be, well, the likelihood is we're probably never going to share. Um, and we have to recall, sort of, it is love for God. It is love for, for neighbor. Um, and it is, it is a good thing to remember. It's actually, it's a joyous thing. So I know that every time I'm reluctant to step into that conversation, and I do, I think you even note this in the book, the conversations usually go better than you anticipate. So sometimes we have this, okay, if I go here, I know what's going to happen. Like they're going to raise their voice or they're going to hang up the phone or they're going to defriend me or whatever it might be, right? And you're worried about these things that could happen. And most of the time, it doesn't happen like that. Most of the time, it's not quite as bad as you anticipate. And there's a tremendous amount of joy in knowing not only was I faithful to the Lord, but this gospel message I'm sharing with them, like this is a true message and it's changed my life. And there's you, as you share, as much as you might be like, oh, I don't think I'm saying this the right way. Well, yeah, the Holy Spirit can overcome all your stupidity and do what he wants. And he does it all the time. Um, he does it a lot of times when you're not sharing the gospel too. We need to remember that. Uh, but yeah, he'll use it. And he'll encourage your own soul in the process. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add to that. I, I just think it's such a good word to remember that ultimately you can't change a single person's heart um, I think of 2 Corinthians 4, where it says that the God of this age, that's referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light that is streaming through the gospel. Well, we are not in the blinder removing business, the blinder lifting business. Only God can lift the blinders. And there's something really liberating about that. Your job, and I'm going to talk about this actually briefly in the sermon, our job is not to convert people or to make the change in their hearts so much as it is to give them the chance to hear and to respond. Um, and so, yeah, be, be freshly encouraged in your uh, evangelism. The, think about when you, know, when you first heard the gospel. I guarantee it wasn't uh, the, the most amazing, articulate, persuasive. No, but God in his sovereignty had an appointment with you that day. You were on God's calendar and he changed your heart in that moment, even despite the stumbling, stumbling efforts of the evangelist. And the last thing I'll say, you know, we think of the world, the flesh, the devil. One of the reasons I just really believe that the flesh and the devil are real things is because of how inconsistent I can be in my evangelism. Because there is no logical reason not to be evangelistically aggressive 
A, because it's what people need in order to avoid an eternity in hell, but B, the times in my Christian life when I have felt most alive are the times when I've been telling someone else about Jesus. So if I was just operating logically, even selfishly, I'd just do it all the time so as to feel invigorated, but I don't. And so don't let your fear, don't let the whispers of the evil one that you're not yet ready, you need to read one more apologetics book, what if you're embarrassed, what if you're rejected, all of that is from the pit of hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember your Max Stiles quote? Yes. Uh, uh, so this is, the, I, I'm talking about, you know, you can, you can get, your, get your heart ready and everything, but there comes a point where you have to just kind of pray for power and you got to start to speak. You have to just open your mouth and start to speak. And Max Stiles said... Um, Sorry, who is he? I presume people know. Max Stiles is a far better author on the topic of evangelism than I am. Uh, he wrote the Red Book in the, seri- in the de- series um, where I wrote the Deacon's Book. You, you, I think you have it out there. It's called Evangelism. He was a campus minister for many years, lived in Dubai, church planted in Iraq. Um, Yeah, it'd be a lot cooler if he was sitting right here. But he said, it's not so much that evangelism has been tried and found wanting as it is that evangelism has been found difficult and left untried. In in other countries, I mean, we're watching the news in Afghanistan, like there there are people fearing far worse than than a raised fist and yet here in America, we fear a raised eyebrow. And uh, Max's encouragement is, is a reminder to me that time is short, uh, and today is the day of salvation. And that's one last thing I would say. In, in a gospel conversation, bring someone to a, a point of decision, okay? So it's not decisionism where you're just saying if you pray these pray this prayer or whatever you're you're you'll, you'll be good with God. But it is helping someone to realize, like like Brad says, he wants someone to leave knowing what they must, you know, the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? We can have wonderful conversation about this. I want to be sensitive to time, which is already quickly uh, coming upon us for the main service. Maybe in four or five minutes, and then we'll close. Tell us a little bit, we thought a lot about your writing, a little bit about your planting. We're going to hear a little more tonight, but about what you're doing and about the plant there, so folks are aware. So this is my first rodeo, planting a church. Uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but we, we have been sent out by Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, to Richmond, Virginia, in order to plant River City Baptist Church. So a week from tomorrow, we're uh, planning to have, my timeline is similar to Trey's, so a week from tomorrow, we're planning to have our first core team meeting, and we're gonna uh, have kind of a bi-weekly drumbeat through the fall and the winter with a view to covenanting, constituting as a new embassy of the High King of Heaven uh, in the spring. So why Richmond, is that, did I briefly say that? Yeah. Uh, He's anticipating all my questions now. So, yeah, because Richmond might seem random to you. You may know it from fourth grade when you had to learn the state capitals. Uh, But my wife and I are both from Virginia, so there's a natural draw to be back in that area. Also, Richmond has just really grown, kind of like Fayetteville has. It's also a, a university city. Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU, is the largest public 
uh, school in the state. And there's a sizable international population. The, the growth rate just of the Richmond metro area is twice the rate of both the, the state of Virginia and the nation of the whole. So it's just one of these places that needs more healthy gospel preaching churches. And the largest mission sending agency on planet Earth happens to be headquartered there, the International Mission Board. So it's a strategic place to have a church where you can help to be an influence on missionaries who are going to take not just the gospel, but also an understanding of the local church to the ends of the earth. So maybe we'll close with this last question. Uh, there's a lot that's been written on how, like, what kind of guy the planner has to be. And they'll do personality studies and everything else. And, you know, he's, he's got to be the entrepreneur and he's got to, however, yeah, you, know, you know that game. Um, not as much has been written on what does it mean for a church to plant churches. So a lot on the guy and a lot on sort of what does it take to get this thing off the ground. But what about the church that's doing the work and the background to help send them out? So, you know, when Antioch is sending out Paul and the team, like maybe what's happening there and what should we be thinking about at UBC as we look to send out Trey and people in the future? Any, any words for us? Basically, what is third not doing you wish they did? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, but actually, uh, we have a, about 15 adults moving from uh, Louisville, Kentucky, 700 miles to Richmond, Virginia, to be a part of uh, this church plant. So we're very, my wife and I are very honored by that. We're encouraged by that. But that's because these people have a vision for church planning, which was God's original evangelism program. Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It got obeyed. Read the books of, book of Acts. Everywhere the gospel went, churches showed up. And actually, churches, it's been documented, are... Um, can be this kind of, if a church is evangelistic, which it should be, you know, a church plant rather, um, you know, there are two ways to do it. One, I could swoop into Richmond and just try to poach Christians from other churches, or I could pray for conversion growth and try to mobilize a congregation to see lost Richmonders come to Christ. If the latter occurs, studies show that evangelistic church plants have a benefit on all the existing churches in an area. So don't think they're competing with existing gospel work. Think of it as kind of an evangelistic feeder system. It's the principle of a rising tide lifts all boats. And so a, a healthy, invigorated church plant can help to uh, reinvigorate and revitalize existing churches. And the last thing I, I would say is I, I would go so far as to, no, no one told me to do this, uh, maybe the Holy Spirit did, but I, I want to challenge some of you to consider going with Trey, and the and and maybe you've considered it, maybe you haven't. But I'm not asking much of you. I'm just saying prayerfully and seriously consider it. God could always tell you no, but it's not about Trey. It is about the kingdom of God advancing in Bentonville, which talk about a place that is exploding and in, in which there is an immense gospel need. Trey needs more than money and pats on the back. Trey needs laborers because the fields are white for harvest in Bentonville. And you don't have to be a Navy SEALs Christian to be a part of a church plant. All I need is people who are willing to live a faithful Christian life in Richmond, Virginia. All Trey needs is people who are willing to do the same thing they're doing here in Bentonville. 
And so don't think that, that you, it's like the evangelism thing. It's, if you're a Christian, you can share the gospel even if you feel ill-equipped. If you're someone who is easy to please and you, and you, and you love to um, do spiritual good to others, you are qualified to be a part of a church plant. And what an invigorating way to spend your life. Even, even if it's not like you're signing your life away, even if you gave it three years, I can't imagine you would ever look back and say, man, I really regretted those three years when I was trying to help get a new gospel witness born. So I, I, I really commend that to your consideration. And the sermons might be shorter. <laughs> Never know. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we give you praise that you do this work, Lord, that you call us unto yourself and you call us to gather with your people and we get to gather as embassies, as Matt said, embassies of the high king of heaven. And what a privilege that is. Lord, we pray that you restore a joy uh, to our own hearts if it's lost that joy, a joy that reads your word and delights in your word, a joy that delights to share others about your word. Lord, we talked about evangelism. Uh, we do pray for those who may be here and they have not believed that good news that they would know that you are a loving and a sovereign God who despite our sin and rebellion has nonetheless in compassion sent your only son to die on the cross for sinners, not for good people, but for sinners, which means for us, and has risen from the grave so that if we repent and believe in Christ, we too can have our sins washed and cleansed. God, we pray that that news would come afresh upon some today that we would believe it in the depth of our own hearts, be unashamed to share it winsomely, compassionately, carefully, you know, telling the truth in love, uh, as, as Matt said, and as, as, we, as he quoted from Scripture there. So, God, we pray that would mark us and that we would be that kind of church that delights to see not only evangelism but other gospel witnesses and outposts born through our work as a congregation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.